Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, including Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops, and also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp. Happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Policy Pack Software, now part of Netrix, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Right as I published last week's episode of the podcast, a major news story broke. Uber disclosed a cybersecurity incident that immediately was recognized as pretty alarming by the InfoSec community on social media, and it gained mainstream news coverage too. So obviously Uber is very popular with just regular consumers, but it's also been pretty important for those of us traveling for work too. During the breach, an attacker believed to be part of the Lapsus cyber gang accessed several employees' accounts which ultimately gave the attacker elevated permissions to a number of tools, including G Suite and Slack. The attacker then posted a message to a company-wide Slack channel, which many in the company saw, and reconfigured Uber's OpenDNS to display a graphic image to employees on some internal sites. Credit to Uber, who were very forthcoming in their disclosure. They suggested an Uber external contractor had their account compromised by an attacker, and it is likely that the attacker purchased the contractor's Uber corporate password on the dark web after the contractor's personal device had been infected with malware, exposing those credentials. The attacker then repeatedly tried to log in to the contractor's Uber account each time the contractor received a two-factor login approval request, which initially blocked access. Eventually, however, the contractor accepted one and the attacker successfully logged in. For those who have followed the podcast for a while, you'd be familiar with this. This is what's known as an MFA fatigue method for attack. So essentially just keep hammering away and the person is going to keep getting those MFA approval notifications and eventually they'll just accept one to make them stop or possibly they'll accept one because they're expecting an MFA approval for something they're trying to do, but really it's this other nefarious MFA pop-up generated by an attacker trying to gain access, and they approve it by mistake. It's said that the attacker accessed several internal systems, and their investigation has focused on determining whether there was any material impact. And as of the 19th of September, Uber stated they did not see evidence of the hack breaching their public-facing services. Uh, Sensitive data such as information and credit card details were not seen to be accessed either. Uber also confirmed they have reviewed their code base, so obviously mindful of the supply chain attacks like the one suffered by SolarWinds. While the investigation is still ongoing, Uber have stated it does appear that the attacker downloaded some internal Slack messages as well as accessed or downloaded information from an internal tool that their finance team uses to manage some invoices. They are currently analyzing those downloads. The attacker was said to be able to access their dashboard at HackerOne, where their security researchers report bugs and vulnerabilities. However, any bug reports that the attacker was able to access have already been remediated. 
Rather interestingly for all of us to possibly learn from, Uber shared what key actions they took and continue to take. And that includes that they identified any employee accounts that were compromised or potentially compromised and either blocked their access to Uber systems or required a password reset. They disabled many affected or potentially affected internal tools. They rotated keys, effectively resetting access to many of their internal services. They locked down their code base, preventing any new code changes. And when restoring access to internal tools, they required employees to re-authenticate. And they are also further strengthening their MFA policies. They have also added additional monitoring for internal environments to keep an even closer eye on any further suspicious activity. They said with their existing security monitoring processes, their team were able to quickly identify the issue and move to respond. And their top priorities were to make sure the attacker no longer had access to their systems and to ensure user data was secure and that Uber services were not affected. And then to investigate the scope and the impact of the incident. So it'll be interesting to see if there's further information on this shared from Uber when they complete their investigation. There probably will be, but kudos to them because they've been pretty open and forthcoming so far. In light of that first news story, BleepyComputer.com reported this week that Okta shared some very interesting metrics from their own research that showed credential stuffing attempts have worsened in 2022 with over 10 billion attempts. Credential stuffing is of course the act of automatically trying a combination of username and passwords to gain access to a product or service, often paired with information that had been retrieved from previous hacks or breaches. Okta also stated that around 34% of all login attempts are actually actions from credential stuffing attempts. Pretty crazy. If you haven't checked all of your email addresses yet in the awesome service Have I Been Pwned, you really should. And if you don't use a password manager yet, you should get one. Also, don't forget MFA, and where possible, turn on the number matching to avoid the MFA fatigue threat. Apologies, because it is a pretty security-heavy episode this week, and I know not everyone appreciates that, but there have been some pretty major impactful InfoSec-related stories and I felt I'd be remiss if I didn't cover them. Uh, so next one, you may remember that I covered the LastPass breach on a previous episode of the podcast. Well, LastPass have shared that their investigation has now been completed and revealed that the threat actor's activity was limited to a four-day period in August 2022. They state that during this time frame, the LastPass security team detected the threat actor's activity and then contained the incident. And there's no evidence of any threat actor activity beyond the established timeline and no evidence that this incident involved any access to customer data or encrypted password vaults. Betanews.com reported that LastPass are still not sure exactly how the attackers got in and they point out that despite the investigation, LastPass have yet to suggest who may be behind the breach. Just a reminder that LastPass confirmed previously that they do not store the master passwords, so the threat to customers was hopefully always bound to have a limited impact. In some positive security-related news, BleepyComputer.com reported this week that Microsoft have released the final version of their security configuration baseline settings for the newly released Windows 11 version 22H2. 
The highlight of the latest Windows 11 security baseline is reported to be the addition of kernel mode hardware enforced stack protection that provides additional hardware level protection for kernel code against malware threats. It works on systems featuring chipsets that support hardware shadow stacks like Intel's Control Flow Enforcement Technology or AMD's Shadow Stacks. It secures the kernel from common exploit techniques, including return-oriented programming and jump-oriented programming by automatically triggering exceptions when it detects that a process's natural flow has been modified. They state that attackers regularly use such exploitation tactics to hijack a program's intended control flow, for instance, attempting to execute malicious code to escape a web browser sandbox or remotely running code when visiting maliciously crafted web pages. To check out the baseline for yourself, you can download the Microsoft Security Compliance Toolkit. Ars Technica this week reported that Morgan Stanley have agreed to pay the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, a $35 million penalty for data security lapses that included unencrypted hard drives from decommissioned data centers being resold on auction sites without first being wiped. The SEC action said that the improper disposal of thousands of hard drives started back in 2016 and was part of an extensive failure. The agency said that the failures also included the improper disposal of hard drives and backup tapes when decommissioning servers in local branches. In all, the SEC said data for 15 million customers was exposed. The report suggests the failure started when they hired a moving company who didn't have the experience with data destruction. An IT consultant notified Morgan Stanley that he bought hard drives containing Morgan Stanley data, and apparently at least some of the drives that were recovered had an option for encryption, but the drives were not encrypted. Without admitting to or denying the SEC claims, Morgan Stanley agreed to the findings that it violated the safeguards and disposal rules under Regulation SP and agreed to pay the $35 million penalty. And in a statement, Morgan Stanley officials wrote, quote, We are pleased to be resolving this matter. We have previously notified applicable clients regarding these matters, which occurred several years ago, and have not detected any unauthorized access to or misuse of personal client information. End quote. So not exactly a very apologetic statement there, but hey, maybe they apologized when they reached out to the clients properly. I'm not sure. Also very surprising that such a prominent bank wouldn't vet a vendor they've been using to dispose of data like that and make sure that they're following best practices. As alluded to earlier, Windows 11 version 22H2 is now available. This update has started to trickle out, so if you don't see it yet in your Windows updates, you should see it soon. But also you can force it by downloading a fresh copy of the operating system or by using the Windows 11 installation assistant. For me, I updated my custom image with my automated monthly image creation for my custom images in Windows 365, and it looks like it took that latest image pretty much right away this week. Over several episodes of the podcast during the summer when this was in preview, I mentioned some of the new features, uh, but just a quick recap of just some of them. Windows 11 22H2 includes a few new security features, a redesigned task manager, 
new touchscreen gestures and Windows management features, and tweaks for the start menu and taskbar, among other things. It also continues to replace all bits of the Windows 8 and Windows 10-like user interface, um, such as the brightness and volume indicators, and replaces them with rounded Windows 11-style versions, bringing more visual consistency to those Windows 11 PCs. There are also some enhancements when it comes to printing, specifically for those using this new version of the OS on Azure Virtual Desktop. Ars Technica had a really interesting report on Windows 11 this week, where reporter Andrew Cunningham expressed his initial concerns with the operating system due to Microsoft's previous commitment to having fewer major updates going forward. He stated that he was worried that some of the UI features that were rough around the edges when Windows 11 initially launched would remain that way for a long time because there would be no forthcoming updates due to the change in the update cadence. Well, many of these quirks and UI shortcomings have been fixed in just some of the monthly rolling updates. And while Microsoft have committed to updating Windows 11 only once a year, they also clearly will be improving and updating the OS throughout the year too. I saw a really interesting tweet this week from Nina Desnica, who works for Microsoft, who stated that you'll be able to integrate the Microsoft Store app catalog with Microsoft Intune, expanding app content available in the Microsoft Store on Windows, and providing a richer experience around app deployment and update controls, and the ability to easily assign and uninstall apps to users and devices. And she teases that there'll be more information about this at the upcoming Microsoft Ignite. So I'd be really interested to hear, I wonder if this is going to be a further incentive for developers and vendors to make their applications available in the store. That way it could be kind of a conduit so enterprises will be able to just easily grab those packages and deploy them inside their environment to their cloud PCs or their physical devices using Intune. So let's watch this space and definitely stay tuned to the podcast each week as I'll cover all the big announcements from Ignite in just a few weeks. And there was an update this week outside of the Patch Tuesday update cadence. This one was KB1549768 and this concerns Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Manager versions including the current branch 2103, 2107, 2111, 2203, and 2207. And the summary states that disabling the allow connection fallback to NTLM option in the client push installation properties is not honored under either of the following conditions. And those conditions include if there are Kerberos authentication failures, the client push account will attempt an NTLM connection instead and also the site server computer account will attempt a connection using NTLM if Kerberos authentication fails for all defined client push installation accounts. So just as it said, it does not honor your wish. And so this uh, Windows update, the KB1549768, will prevent any attempt at NTLM authentication for client push installations when the allow connection fallback to NTLM option is disabled. And this one is tracked as CVE-2022-37972 if you want to read more about it. And just a note, it is recommended to disable this option in your existing environment where possible to increase security. 
and beginning with version 2207, the allow connection fallback to NTLM option is actually disabled by default on all new site installations, but obviously it was not really obeying in those two scenarios until you install this update. Now some quick hit stories to wrap up the news for this week. Adobe have announced they plan to acquire Figma, which is a popular web-based collaborative design tool for around $20 billion. And the transaction is divided into roughly half cash, half stock, and is expected to close in 2023, subject to regulatory approval. So while it's popular, when I used it, I wasn't that big of a fan, and it'll be interesting to see what Adobe plans to do with this acquisition. Is it a case that they're going to integrate this into their own existing suite and sell it? Or is this simply an acquisition where they want to shelve the product and just remove some of their competition? So I guess we'll have to wait and see. And wrapping up the news for this week, this one is actually courtesy of my buddy Jurgen, who actually highlighted something that I tweeted out uh, several months ago. And that is a dialogue that pops up from Windows Defender Firewall uh, pretty frequently for me, I'm not sure about other people, but this is Windows Defender Firewall has blocked some features of msedge.exe.exe on all public and private networks. Now, that is not a mispronunciation. It's not msedge.exe, which is obviously the process for the Microsoft Edge browser. It's msedge.exe.exe. So it seems kind of strange and it had been suggested to me before that that might be like malware and that's why it was being blocked. But on further investigation, just looking through the Windows event error logs, it looks to me like it's only happening when the Edge browser itself is trying to update. So that might be actually updating or just checking for updates. So I'm guessing that as part of the update process, Microsoft might be renaming the actual main EXE just in case they want to copy in or create a new base exe as part of the update process. Uh, Jurgen was asking on Twitter if anyone else is seeing this pop-up. Obviously, I'm seeing it and Jurgen's seeing it. It's got to be more than just us, right? So if you are seeing this, please do reach out. Uh, contact me on Twitter, at Rory Mon. And if you want to contact Jurgen and let him know as well, He's at leodesk underscore IT. And now some scripts, tricks, and tips. And of course, once again, starting off the scripts, tricks, and tips this week with one from Guy Leach, who asked, do you want to see if your AD group policy objects aren't used or have no links? And if they have user or computer settings or both? Well, he has an almost PowerShell one-liner to do it. And rather than read that out for you, I'm just going to share a link to that with this episode. You'll be able to find that at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode, which is episode 248. And I share links to absolutely everything I talk about on every episode of the podcast. And you can find that at 5bytespodcast.com. But also this week, Mark Simos shared a common patching anti-patterns infographic that shows just some of the old negative mindset some people have, like they refuse to change their ways when it comes to patching. And besides some of those negative anti-patterns, it shows the actual best practice. So this is like a two-pager, it might be worth printing out and just sharing with your patching team. Mateus Malerton Kalveg, I'm sorry, I'm sure I butchered that name, but 
Mateus published a blog on Intune error codes and solutions. So it's a pretty good blog for any Intune error codes you might have and leading you to resolve those. M365internal.com published a practical guidance for IT admins to respond after ransomware attacks. So this is a topic that's been covered by several different websites and blogs out there. And I usually share them because I find them really interesting and you might find them interesting too. Abhinav Rana published a blog post on deploying Amazon workspaces using FC using SCCM. So this is the how-to guide. So if you want to deploy the Amazon Workspaces agent using MECM, this one will be of interest to you. And congratulations to Michael Zanata, whose book has been published, The Modern IT Automation with PowerShell Book. And this book aims to provide you with a more academic format worthy of use as a teaching tool. And the book is divided into five domains. Each section contains contributions from subject experts within the PowerShell community. They say whether you are a student just getting started in IT or a seasoned professional that casually uses PowerShell, you will benefit from reading this book. And finally, just a shout out that the Cloud Paging User Group online meetup will be taking place this Friday, September 23rd at 2.30 p.m. BST, which is 3.30 p.m. Central European Summertime, which I believe is 8.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time for those in the U.S. And the topics being covered this week is New Messenger going to provide an update cloud pager roadmap. And we'll also just have kind of a general group discussion around multi-session server OS, published desktops, and what people's plans might be for those multi-session machine needs going forward. So if you want to join a really awesome group and great conversation, be sure to register for that event. And I'll share a link to the registration with this episode. But that's it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening.